Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Christian Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today it's my great privilege to be joined by Michelle Chaplin Sanchez, author of Calvin and the Resignification of the World, Creation, Incarnation, and the Problem of Political Theology in the 1559 Institutes, published in 2019 by Cambridge University Press. Michelle is Associate Professor of Theology at Harvard Divinity School, and it's such a privilege to have her join us today. Michelle, thanks for being here, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ryan. The pleasure is mine. Well, congratulations on the new book, Calvin and the Resignification of the World. I'm so eager to get into it with you, but first, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um... So I have been at Harvard Divinity School for quite a long time. I was a master's student there, and then I was a doctoral student at Harvard. Um, And then I got this job uh, in Reformation studies and Protestant theology. And my questions that I've developed over this time basically focus on the intersection between Protestant theologies and the formation of the Western world with broadening interests in how theological categories inform both as sort of a point of departure and as a point of uh, kind of a metaphorical reservoir for uh, the way we think about the organization of society, the organization of people, and uh, reasons for, uh, like justifications for spreading uh, Western ways of life outside of the bounds of Europe and America. So I'm increasingly interested in the relationship between theology and colonization and different ideas of political anthropology, theological anthropology, and the way we categorize human beings. Um, So that's kind of my broad area of interest. I got into this um, almost from birth. I was raised in a very um, traditional evangelical community in Florida, in the United States. And uh, my family was several different kinds of Protestant growing up. We started out when I was really little as Pentecostal and then Baptist, and then we were reformed Uh, PCA, so the more conservative branch of Presbyterianism in the United States. And then I went to college and I studied philosophy. I spent a lot of time, especially with Kant and Hegel. And they proved to be really important conversation partners for me, trying to sort of figure out where the kind of separatist community I was raised in fit in this broader, Mm. uh, kind of broadly European American experiment um, that sometimes calls itself secular but serves as the arena for various culture wars that involve theology and conceptions of God and church and what it means to be human. So when I eventually came to divinity school, I got really interested in these debates over how religion and especially Protestantism influenced the world. I I remember taking some courses on Calvin who had been very important in my childhood, but nobody ever read Calvin. They kind of talked about Calvin a lot and they talked about the people who talked about Calvin And I knew the five points and I knew Tulip and all this stuff, but I didn't really have a sense for what Calvin wrote or what he was like historically. So that was a big eye-opening thing for me as a student that that kind of led its way to this project. So these questions of 
um, how religion and Protestantism influence the world we live in. And then Calvin's particular role in that is, uh, is still central to what I do. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. And, and we, I can see how all of those themes um, in various ways get uh, displayed throughout the work that, that we're going we're gonna to talk about now. So as a way to get into this book, I'm wondering if you could just, to start, help orient us a little bit to, to John Calvin uh, and, and the 1559 edition of his institutes. Uh, who, who is Calvin and, and what are the institutes, uh, you know, in a couple of minutes? Sure. Um, so Calvin was born in 1509 in France, in northern part of France, and he was not from a well-to-do family, but he was one of these stories of some, I think his father was some sort of clerk, and he got sort of discovered by a, a family who pa- patronized him uh, to be able to attend university eventually, and he studied law, he was well-trained in Stoicism, he wrote uh, basically the equivalent of a dissertation on Seneca's De Clemencia, which was a sort of advisory piece of writing to the Emperor Nero. And at the time when Calvin was a student, there was this huge resurgence of interest in the Romans um, and the Greeks. So we call this humanism, not to be confused with what today is called humanism, although there's obviously overlaps. But for Calvin, humanism would have been the rediscovery of kind of interest in human virtue and civic virtue that came out of what we consider to be the kind of ancient classical philosophers, um, mostly the Stoics. So he was trained in that, and he also was adjacent to early reforming communities. So Luther had, you know, famously kind of launched the Reformation, although you could say that Reformation had been happening for centuries before that. But, you know, Luther was the sort of figurehead Um, That caused a big stir, partly because he went after the Pope in particular over the issue of indulgences. And that was a sort of a very pointed challenge to papal authority in a way that a lot of people hadn't done yet. So this was happening when Calvin was a young man. It was kind of spreading in various ways. But the Reformation in France was different. I mean, Reformation is always local. So it was different from what was happening in the Holy Roman Empire, in the German-speaking areas. And part of the catalyst for Calvin's reforming work was the critique of the Mass in particular. So the Mass, you know, the teaching that the, the bread and the wine truly are transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ, and this happens through the mediation of the priest. Uh, this was a, a catalyzing doctrine for the kind of French reforming humanist circle that Calvin was a young student and he was part of. So as a result of this work, um, this kind of critical work that was happening in relation to a French king who at the time was very interested in humanism, the French king uh, kind of wanted to be a humanist uh, philosopher king. And he was, he was open to being cultivated and advised in this way. But the French monarchy was also highly, uh, highly, um, empowered by the ideology of the Eucharist. So there was a kind of sense that France, because of the papal schism in which the Pope had been in France for uh, for a number of, almost a century um, in the recent past, uh, there was a kind of confluence of Eucharistic imagery and symbolism and the authority of the king it's sort of feeding off of this. So when the humanist reformers started critiquing the Eucharist and the mass, it, it turned into sedition very quickly. Um, it was perceived to be a threat to the monarchy, and Calvin was among the people who were expelled from France as a result. So when Calvin was, let's see, he was, let me do math in my head, about 
23 years old. <laughs> he, no, 24. Anyway, he was in his 20s and he left uh, France as an exile and ended up after a securitist journey in Geneva, which was a city that wanted to sort of throw off the power of the aristocracy that was connected to the Catholic Church. So they, they basically didn't want to be connected to the House of Savoy. Um, they were open to having reformers in their midst to help them make that transition. And Calvin turned out to be sort of the spiritual leader of that movement. He was never the political leader of Geneva, but he was a very important figure um, in the university and in the church there. And that's where he spent his career. Uh, so the Institutes was one of his major works that he produced, and he revised it, I think, five times over the course of his adult life. The first edition came out in 1536. And the final edition, which he was very self-conscious in calling it the final edition, um, he said that he was finally satisfied with the arrangement of it, came out in 1559. So this is the, the 1559 text is the one that has been most widely read, most widely disseminated, um, which isn't to say that you shouldn't read the others. I mean, if you're very interested in Calvin, you should read all of them, right? But most people are not going to do that. <laughs> and most people have read, the if they're going to read him, have read parts of the 1559 edition. So with my interest in understanding a more nuanced view of Calvin's impact on the modern Western world, uh, that is the book that I focused on. Thank you so much for that, Michelle. And, and so much of, of the context in which Calvin is writing is a, is a theme that you use throughout your reading of, of this text. Now, of course, you're not the first person to write about Calvin's Institute. So, so maybe could you just help us fit your work into this scholarly conversation about Calvin and his writings? And so how are you wanting to reshape the conversation, especially about how Calvin's writings in the Institutes were, were both shaped by and used to shape the notion of political sovereignty in, in the early modern European project? Yeah, as you note, uh, Calvin has been widely written on in various ways and with different focuses. Uh, most writing on Calvin in the realm of what we might call secularization theory or theories of modernity focuses on usually just two of his doctrines. One is predestination and one is discipline or church discipline, which kind of leads to a broader disciplinary mindset. Um and both of those doctrines are certainly important to Calvin. Part of where I intervene is to say that those two doctrines are best understood when contextualized in the bounds of this project itself, the project of the Institutes. Um, so on the other hand, another strand of Calvin scholarship that exists, and, and all of these, by the way, I think are very important. I don't see my work as sort of necessarily upsetting work that currently exists as much as finding a place in between the work that currently exists to give a reading of Calvin that might shed more light on these questions that we all have. So within Calvin's studies, there's been a ton of really important work done on Calvin in his contemporary context and his relationship to his contemporary reformers, you know, people such as Melanchthon or Bucer, Um, And that, as I said, is very important. I was less interested in that partly because it's been done um, and partly because what I'm after is the sort of what one of my teachers calls the slow rhetorical impact of Calvin. So if you think of this text that it wasn't the only thing he wrote, he wrote commentaries and he wrote sermons and he had an, he had a pedagogical understanding for all of his different kinds of writing, but the institutes was the one text that for him was a manual. It was the text that was supposed to 
exists sort of between the student um, who might literally be a student in the university in Geneva, or more broadly is any student who <laughs> receives the text in a kind of reforming context and wants to learn what does it mean to be a reformed Christian, to build a church that is a reformed church, um, and to kind of achieve a kind of institutional stability in the world that a non-Catholic church didn't yet have at the time Calvin's writing. How do you do that? How do you re-reform not just the church, but reform your own mind and reform your own body and your understanding of community and what makes you recognizable um, as a human being with other people to other people? So I argue that that the Institute's part of what part of why Calvin, I think, revised it over and over and over again was he wanted it to serve as this kind of mediatory tool, like literally a tool. Um, a kind of artifact that could be useful. Uh, like he he calls scripture famously spectacles, mm-hmm. and he's very interested in divine accommodations. So the way God teaches us through scripture by using symbols, using anthropomorphic imagery, things that Calvin thinks we need because we are embodied people. Uh, we have senses, and that's how we learn. We don't get anything in our mind that hasn't already come through our senses. So we need visuality, we need texture, And this comes through in writing as well. So if the Bible is supposed to be spectacles, I think it's pretty clear from the way Calvin writes and the things he says that he wants the institutes to be sort of a spectacle for spectacles, almost like, you know, you can picture like those sunglasses (laughs) that go over your glasses or something like that. He says the institutes are uh, a guidebook for how to access scripture and how to relate scripture to the world. So it's designed in this really, like when he talks about accommodations, I don't think we're wrong to think of the modern usage of accommodation as something for people with different levels of disabilities or accessibility issues. Um, And you get an accommodation that enables you to access things like other people. But for Calvin, the fall means, the fallenness into sin means that we all have fundamentally the same disability, which is our inability to see or think clearly, and we need these accommodations. So these texts serve that purpose. Um, So that's how I approach the institutes, and it's distinctive from other existing approaches for, I think, my the extent of my attention to artifactuality and design, although other scholars sort of have moved in this direction, uh, I just use more words (laughs) to do so. Uh, But also, to help that reading, I put Calvin in conversation with a lot of contemporary theory that's thinking about the way theological language connects to the way we talk about peoplehood and statehood and sovereignty, and also the way that textual symbols function in relation to embodied material things in the world to affect our imagination and to help us like look at a tree and we know it's a tree and maybe we knew it was a tree before, but when Calvin links and through the Bible links the tree to like the righteousness of God, then when you look at a tree, you see something pointing to God. So you see the tree differently, Mm -hmm. which is something that uh, a lot of modern philosophers such as Judith Butler um, will use that same kind of approach to talk about how we learn to see other people differently. We learn to see ourselves differently. We perform ourselves in different ways. And I think this conversation can even connect to things like unconscious bias, where we have an association of a certain kind of person as maybe being dangerous or maybe being less valuable. And you need something to disrupt that if you want to change that. And I think that's when I talk about resignification, I think that's what Calvin is after, something that disrupts the fallen way we see the world and helps us to make new kinds of associations. As very helpful. And your first section really starts to tackle the genre of the institutes. 
I was I was really intrigued by the the two different kinds of books that you discussed the the Incaridion and the Itinerarium. Um, I especially appreciated how, like for example, you you talk about how a map um, to Calvin or to the early modern um, reader had a kind of different function than we might think of a map today as a more visual spatial um, synchronic thing rather than a, a more diachronic um, experienced thing. So so what, what can you tell us about the genre of the Institutes and how um, how Calvin might have understood what he was doing in writing it? Yeah. Um, when I teach my Reformation class, my first week always takes the students on sort of a PowerPoint history of maps starting in around 1200 and then moving forward to what looks like a more familiar map in our present And the thing that you really note, well, I mean, there's a lot of differences, but the earliest map that we look at, like I said, from like the 13th century are places that are obviously mythologized. You'll get these kind of big buildings, you'll get monsters, um, and they're superimposed in this particular tradition of the map onto the body of Christ. And they're in a cruciform shape. And you can see sort of the, hand, the, the hands with the nail holes on the right and left and the feet on the bottom and the center sort of Christ's heart or Christ's gut is in Jerusalem, which is the center of the world. And then, of course, you know, you picture a map from today and, you know, you can kind of tell the continental outlines. You can see where the oceans and rivers are and things like that. Uh, you don't tend to see meaning like human meaning loaded onto the map in the same way. So I think that's a kind of good snapshot for thinking about the difference here. And Calvin's writing at a time when, you know, Columbus set sail in 1492. Calvin's first edition of the Institutes is 1536. So there's not a lot of time here. I mean, this is like, yeah, this is what, 40 years or so um, removed from when the map is starting to get rewritten in the ways that are more familiar today. But Calvin, this is part of why I love him as a figure to work on, because he's got sort of one foot in what we call the medieval times and one foot in the modern times and all these early modern figures are similar, um, which is why this is kind of an aside, but part of what I really try to resist in the book is this uh, acceptance of easy periodizations. So debates over is Calvin medieval or is Calvin modern? I think the right answer is like, why are we using these categories? Let's get rid of those categories and try to read what Calvin's doing, who he's referencing. Uh, He's referencing a lot of people who wrote around the beginning of the common era. You know, he's not, only in, you know, talking to his own contemporaries. And the same goes for the influence of Calvin's writing later. Uh, He's creating an object that gets sort of picked up, just like he's picking up Augustine or he's picking up Seneca. I can pick up Calvin and Calvin can kind of travel through time Mm -hmm. through his book to impact me in a certain way. Um, But part of, I think, where you see this really happening is in this map imagery. So uh, one of the things I compare the Institutes to is the medieval theological genre, as you mentioned, of the itinerarium, which already took, uh, like itineraria is just a name for maps. So you could, I mean, you could just think map when I say that, I'm just gonna start saying map, right? So if you were using a map in say the 1300s, 1400s, it was not like a map that we use today where the map exists, you kind of look at it, you think, okay, I'm gonna get here, I can see how to go. Rather, the map guided you step by step. So it was like a pilgrimage map or something like that. And you would pass certain way stations that the map would lead you to. And when you get to a way station, you would be encouraged to stop and pray or stop and recite something. So 
when you're taking this journey, it's kind of understood that you are going to be changed by it. And that's the goal. Like you don't want to be the same person you were when you left, when you arrive. Um, the, the physical part of the journey is important, like the strategy it takes to be able to climb mountains if you need to or cross rivers or find food, but also the spiritual exercise that's superimposed onto that is, is equally important. So when you arrive and the kind of the archetype of these maps take you to Jerusalem, you arrive, you're supposed to kind of have a, a spiritual moment of arrival as well as a physical moment of arrival. And the two are not easily distinguished. And this ended up influencing theological writing, uh, that, maybe isn't asking the person, the reader, to take a physical journey to another place, but it's asking the reader to take a, a physical journey to a place that already exists where they are, but on a kind of higher level of consciousness. So you're starting out with your assumptions as they are, and Calvin will start out by saying, you know, we have the knowledge of God, and we have the knowledge of ourselves, and we have to start with God, but we also can't help but start with ourselves because we are who we are, and we've got all these problems, like we can't see things right, we feel dread, we feel fear, we're scared about our place in the world and how to preserve our life, and our fear leads us to make idols. And he's got this whole story for where you're starting. And he's telling that story in part to tell you where you need to go. And then he'll switch back to God. God created the world in this way, where God puts God's signs and marks and insignia all over the world. We ought to be able to see them, we can't. How can we see them? We have to put on the spectacles of scripture. How do we do that? We learn to read scripture in certain ways. And so it becomes this kind of step-by-step -step exercise and Calvin deliberately moves through all these different theological topics to kind of one at a time say, um, how are you thinking about yourself? You know, what, what is the human being? Let's talk about that. How are you thinking of yourself in the world? That's the doctrine of providence. Let's talk about that. Um, how are you thinking of yourself in suffering? Uh, you know, that has to do with following the sufferings of Christ. Let's think about that. And at each step, that's what I call, um, kind of following modern theorists, uh, resignification. And then by the end, Calvin leaves you. And this was the part that was the most fun to me as a student when I started researching this. I realized I was kind of reading some stuff about these maps and, and the Bible itself. Like it leads you the way it was compiled canonically. The most familiar canonicalization in the West leads you to the book of Revelation and the New Jerusalem, right? So that's also kind of a, a according to genre, that's how the genre of the itineraria works. Um, it leads you to a city, it leads you to Jerusalem. And when you get to the end of Calvin's Institutes, you find yourself in a city. Uh, but what was fun to me and really fascinating is that it's not like a, a holy city. It's not like a, you know, a great, I don't picture like Oz or something like that at the end of Calvin's Institutes. It's just like a normal city. And he doesn't even specify that it's a monarchy or a republic. At one point, he says he prefers it's an aristocracy for several reasons. But he's basically like, simultaneously gesturing to the importance of the city and also demoting the importance mm. of the city. Because part of what and you know, I guess this is skipping around a little bit, but part of what I argue maybe my most important central argument is that for Calvin, divine power is linked to creation. So to nature, in a sense, as we understand it today, not to government. So if you're going to look for like where God should be most clearly expressed, you should look to creation. You shouldn't look to your government. Your government should be sort of helping you live so that you can live into the creation that God has made. So when Calvin arrives at the city, it's like it could be any city. And the point is, how do you live in it in such a way that you keep it within its bounds? Uh, which is to allow for the sort of pious cultivation of this community, which really exists in the church in relation to creation. 
Yeah, I found the 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 teleology argument that you made to be so helpful. Exactly, it, it is so surprising that we end up um, in this very theological text and um, talking about politics at the end instead of in you know John Bunyan's Celestial City at the end of Pilgrim's Progress. So your second section is about this this um, issue that you just named of of providence. Um, what, what's the case that you're trying to make about how Calvin's institutes um, both receive and transform different theories about providence that had been um, proposed? And, and, and what does it mean uh, for Calvin about how the Christian should approach suffering, sovereignty, and, and the world? To <laughs> not you know, everything. Yeah, I know there's a lot going on in the providence section. And yeah. if anyone out there is interested in like the archaeology of even like a relatively new monograph uh, that that's the center of where the book started was in the providence stuff my dissertation was on providence and then it grew to this larger project because i i knew that part of what i wanted to argue about providence was that providence needs to be read in this itinerarium that calvin has made and then I couldn't really, you know, it's part and whole problem, right? I couldn't really talk about this part without doing the whole. So it turned into this kind of longer exposition of the institutes in particular. But but Providence got my attention as a doctoral student because, well, two things. One was that it, it's a really important doctrine for secularization theorists. Um, Providence is an ancient teaching. It's not just Christian. It actually, I mean, some people pin it to Plato uh, as the first person to talk about pronoia. And in Greek, pronoia can mean both oversight and foresight, which I think is really important to sort of meditate on for a second. <laughs> that providence, I, you know, I've, I've met all kinds of people and some people don't have any idea what providence even is other than a city in Rhode Island. Um, <laughs> but usually when people know something about providence, they think of it as, okay, God has planned out everything that's going to happen. Everything is determined. We don't really have free will. It's this kind of um, forward thinking, like there's a future that's set argument. But if you go back to the Greek, it, it is that, but it's also oversight. So it's looking at the whole now, like the whole of the world, and thinking about how to order it almost as if you were the governor of the world. Like if you were the governor, you're kind of looking at your kingdom and you're thinking, how do I want to make some changes so things work better? So providence kind of always was a discourse on governance. Um, so which that's one of the reasons why people interested in secularization. And by secularization, I mean um, the transfer of a theologically rich way of seeing the world to a uh, to a way of seeing the world purely in human terms, but that sort of keeps the structure. Um, what Hans Blumenberg, who's one of the famous secularization theorists, has a theory that he calls pseudomorphosis. I mean, that's like a geologic term, but basically the idea is that there's minerals that develop and they create like a kind of shape and rocks and then they die away. And then something else fills that spot, but it still has the shape because the shape was made by the earlier mineral. So that's a kind of an image you can use for how some people talk about secularization. So I was interested in the way that these kinds of theorists say there was a whole like habit network of human life that was shaped by the idea that God governs the world. God kind of sees what's going to happen. 
And then you know, the way the story goes for a lot of people, a lot of theorists is that, you know, people stop believing in God, but they still have this network of habits that they're living out and God gets kind of functionally replaced by the king or by the race or, you know, by, by some kind of representation of what it means to be fully authorized to govern, to be the leader. Um, now that narrative has been challenged in a lot of different ways. For one thing, people didn't really stop believing in God. Like a lot of people still believe in God. So, I mean, there's a lot of problems with that. But this was an influential story that kind of got me going on why Providence and Calvin was important because I was surprised to see, you know, once I got into this field that people hadn't really taken Calvin's doctrine of Providence seriously. A lot of people write about predestination, which is more of a human specific salvation specific version of Providence. But Providence, which Calvin writes a lot about, is a whole thing about how God governs the world. And I had the sense that if I if I read that closely and understood what was going on, I might get a different angle on the way Calvin and reform theology has influenced um, kind of secular forms of society. And also just the way that Calvinism has represented itself. And there's all kinds of different Calvinisms and kind of the most famous ones tend to be the most reactionary ones, but there's a lot of different Calvinisms out there. So, so that was my interest. Um, and basically I, to keep it really brief, the argument I make is that, Calvin has a really famously rigorous and capacious view of providence. A lot of people call it scary. That God is literally causing everything that happens, including the evil stuff. And Calvin, oh, this, I, I said earlier, I had two reasons. This is the second reason I was interested in uh, providence. And it's because of how Calvin treats it. I mean, he's just so fearless, um, which you could, you know, you're free to interpret that in a kind of negative light that he was just like, committed to the doctrine at any cost. But I also just thought, I mean, he's a smart guy and he writes in ways in, in the parts that don't often get read and repeated that shows a sensitivity to the human experience. So why was he so willing to have this really like rigorous, scary view of Providence where God causes everything? So I was basically like, what if he had good intentions and like, can I figure out what's going on in this doctrine? So, so this is where I'll make the long story short. Um, after a close reading, I found that Calvin tends to emphasize the act of will of God in everything that happens, but that includes a will that the world continue to exist. So that the world is created good and that it is the kind of underpinning of life and the possibility of created life itself. And that complex of causes and effects that exist within the world, um, God as creator is not he, God is willing them, but God's willing them as a, as a gesture of affirmation, as basically saying you exist as a quasi independent entity, whether you are a human or a tree or a river or whatever, um, you have your own integrity and I'm willing that integrity, even if that integrity means that, you know, you're going to fall down and get hurt uh, because you, your skin is sensitive, you know, you're vulnerable to suffering and death. Um, even if it means you're going to develop cancer or somebody's going to drown in the beautiful river, all of these, all the vulnerability is what's necessary for us to have the kind of like rich life that we do where we love and we care and we suffer. And I saw in this um, a kind of structural resonance to Nietzsche's argument against nihilism. Uh, that's again, another one that's often misunderstood. Like a lot of, you know, every, everyday people will think Nietzsche, they'll think nihilist because that's somebody started saying that at some point, but Nietzsche was actually really trying to oppose nihilism and trying to come up with like the best 
uh, posture of life he could to combat the idea that everything in the end was meaningless and we couldn't overcome all the suffering that the world and the world history had generated. And Nietzsche's sort of, you know, again, long story short answer to that was we just have to say yes to the world. Um, yes to everything that's ever happened. Yes to it happening again eternally. And that's the one way that we can overcome resentment and overcome the urge to revenge and let the kind of vitality and joy of life live through us, even amidst the suffering. And I thought Calvin was just, I mean, obviously I don't think Nietzsche read Calvin. If he did, I probably didn't like him and didn't consciously use him. So I'm not making an argument that they actually influenced each other, uh, but more that there's a pattern you can find where somebody's taking a kind of problem around suffering and recognition and meaning very seriously and they're not going to accept the easy answers. They're not going to say, oh, well, we had to have free will or, you know, there's a good purpose in the end and all, you know, the goodness at the end justifies all the badness. Like Nietzsche doesn't do that. And I think Calvin doesn't do that either. He thinks that what what justifies it is just existence. Um, life itself is a good that surpasses every possible bad. Um, so I explore that. That's one of the dimensions that I explore in thinking about how this really rigorous view of providence can actually be a comfort. Calvin says it should be a comfort. So I think it actually, you can understand, you might not agree, but I think you can at least enter the mindset where that kind of thing could be a comfort. Hmm. Well, if, if providence is, is, as you've talked about, is such this big and kind of all encompassing um, portion of your, of your argument, then you really start to bring it home a little bit with your final section, which is on the incarnation um, so I'm wondering if you could just, as as we kind of wrap up our, our conversation about about the book, um, how how does your reading of the Institutes challenge some of the common links, um, specifically Calvin's view of the incarnation, to start to challenge some of the the more common readings of Calvin, like say uh, Weber's, um, you know, famous Calvin and capitalism kind of argument. Um, how does how does the the incarnation relate to this this providential view of the world and and how Calvin is giving us spectacles for spectacles? <laughs> so I I have these two parts follow on each other in part because Calvin does uh, you know he starts he's got four books for those of you probably ninety nine percent out there who haven't read the Institutes which is fine. Um, and there's four books. The first one is on God, the creator, the knowledge of God, the creator. The second is on the knowledge of Christ, the redeemer. And then the third is on how we receive the grace of Christ. And then the fourth one is uh, basically the reception of the grace of Christ in society. And I'm paraphrasing these, but, but the pattern you get, and this goes back to my map argument, is that you start in creation at its broadest possible scope. So you're in the world, the whole universe is, as Calvin calls it, the theater of God's glory, the schoolhouse for piety. He has all these kind of pedagogical metaphors for understanding or for trying to give an account of where we should start our education. And then he moves to, to Christ. So this sequence is really important uh, to Calvin. He calls it the duplex cognitio, the twofold knowledge of God. Um, and he starts by saying that the knowledge of God is, as I said before, related to the knowledge of ourselves. So the task at hand from sentence one of the book is relating the knowledge of ourselves. And I think it's really important that it's plural. It's not just me, like my own individuality. It's us as you know, human beings to God. And we do that first through creation and second through Christ. So Christ enters the scene 
as all the things that Christianity teaches Christ is, you know, the incarnate son of God who dies for our sins, who rises again to give us eternal life so that we can spend eternity with God. Christ is all of those things. But for Calvin, Christ also serves this pedagogical purpose that I think is very much particularized to Calvin's approach. Um, So another theme that I explore in the book, but that really comes to the foreground in this chapter is just embodiment. And I'm interested, as I mentioned before, with the accommodation argument that Calvin thinks that we are humans in human fleshly bodies, and we need fleshly things to see and understand in order to learn. So Christ comes to us as a kind, as a human and as a human who shares in our embodiment, who knows things in the same way we know things, who he writes, I think the most beautiful passage in the Institutes is in book three. Um, chapter eight and nine, where he talks about the suffering of Christ as setting the sort of model for how we should handle suffering as Christians, that Christ did not find it shameful to cry or to protest, um, to basically feel all the human feelings. And this is where Calvin, who loves the Stoics and uses the Stoics a lot, I think deeply influenced, but this is where he explicitly turns away from the kind of the caricature of, you know, the Stoic who is unmoved by things because suffering is a necessity. So why would you be upset about a necessity? You know, part of the cultivation there is that you should not feel protest emotions. But Calvin thinks that Jesus overturns this because Jesus does. Jesus cries, he sweats drops of blood. And that what that means is that in the, in the context of providence, that God is basically affirming not just creation, but even the kind of fundamentally human and fleshed reactions that we have to things. So God is in that moment affirming our tears and affirming like our protests and our groans that this shouldn't be happening this way. So that to me exemplifies the first step of providence is affirmation. Now, Calvin doesn't leave it there. Um, Calvin thinks that that's a first step to eventually accepting what has happened to you. And then submitting to the will of God that providentially, the the first step of providence is to affirm. The second step of providence is to sort of work with causes as a distinct cause, as as a distinct divine cause that can bring good out of evil. So Calvin does have that kind of good comes out of evil. I just think it's really important that it follows after this affirmation move. And that's what you see with Christ, that Christ affirms the human condition, that Christ submits to suffering in every way that humans suffer. And then in doing this, Christ follows the will of God. And then in the end, Christ experiences joy. And that's kind of the promise that Calvin has for humans that like by understanding ourselves through the representation of Christ, that we will also affirm, accept, and then feel a kind of mysterious joy, which Nietzsche incidentally also, that's where he ends up. You have this joy, you don't know where it comes from, which is another kind of funny connection um, that I found. But so on the one hand, this reading of Christ acts as uh, an accommodation itself for us to be able to look at a human and see that human representing us and our struggles and our sufferings, but also at the exact same time representing God and what God promises to us, um, the kind of work that God promises to do in creation to bring that joy out of it. Christ represents all of that. So it, it gives us, Christ fundamentally gives us hope that through these kind of following this pattern of affirmation and acceptance and submission that we will experience the joy in the end. But Calvin also provides 
a series of exercises through which we learn to participate in Christ. And that's where I think election plays a really important and misunderstood, deeply misunderstood role. Um, So as you mentioned, and as I mentioned before, one of the common arguments you hear about Calvinism is that Calvin had this really stringent view of election where God predestines people for heaven and God predestines people for hell. And you don't get any choice. It doesn't matter what you do or who you are. It's all preset before you're even born. And that's understandably very scary for people because what if I'm not elect? I can't do anything about it. My whole life is meaningless. Um, And Weber's argument is that that anxiety created the conditions for a kind of attention to work because you were desperate for any kind of sign that you might be chosen. You knew that you couldn't please God through any of your actions because you're already a sinner. But maybe if you worked hard and if your work was blessed, that would be a sign that God was like moving you in the right direction. Um, I mean, I think there probably is something to that argument in certain locations, but I don't think Calvin was doing anything like that with his argument. Uh, Election doesn't appear until the end of book three. So where Calvin's basically concerned with how we receive the Holy Spirit. And what election does for Calvin is it takes all this teaching that the human being who is his student, right? The journey the student's been on is they've been through the universe, they've been through the study of Christ as a representative, and you get to election, and that's the moment where you're like, how do I see myself no longer as an observer, but as involved? Hmm. And Calvin gives a lot of arguments for predestination, but they really come down to the fact that you can only know your own election, and you only know your own election through the fact that you want it, basically. Uh, so it's this funny argument that I think I paraphrase at some point as I desire, therefore I am because mm-hmm. Calvin's basically like, you wouldn't care if you weren't elect. You would just be like, that's a bunch of hogwash, whatever, um, which I'm sure a lot of people think. And I don't want to say that that means they're not elect, but, uh, but for Calvin, he would just say like, if you're worried about it, that's a really good sign that you are because the desire wouldn't be there unless God gave you the desire, but you can't know that for anyone else. That's like an internal thing that you only know for yourself. But what that does is it lets you sort of enter this performance, you know, the theater of God's glory, you get to be kind of an actor instead of just a spectator. Like you are now with Christ, you're represented by Christ through the adoption of the Holy Spirit, and you get to live out this Christly life. And then in book four, just very quickly, uh, he spends most of the book until he gets to the city on the church. And the church is marked by its preaching and its observance of the two sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it's through that, once you get the sequence of all these things right, you can really see how the church is composed of people who understand themselves to be elect and who practice this exercise of resignification together through preaching. Preaching basically takes scripture and relates it to the world. And the Eucharist takes worldly things like water, uh, I should say baptism and the Eucharist. It takes water, it takes bread and wine, and it encourages us, it asks us, to see them as the body and blood of Christ, as the washing of God. And so when we look at bread for Calvin, we shouldn't see uh, something that's substantially Christ's body, but what we should see is something that is a fundamental teacher of what Christ's body does for us. Christ's body spiritually nourishes us and gives us this opportunity to participate in the theater. Um, so it's, it's this kind of uh, a microcosm of what's supposed to be happening on the macrocosm. On the microcosm, you learn to see bread and wine and water as these like significantly symbolically rich things because they have this deep connection to God. And it's that exercise that teaches you to kind of see everything ultimately in the world like that. Everything has significance in relation to God. And that's Calvin's deep Augustinianism 
but it's one that in principle takes place outside of the bounds of the church and state. The church is a place where you exercise this, but it's the world that acts as the the place in which that exercise happens. Well, just as as Calvin was taking his uh, students through this grand journey, I feel like we've gone through such a, a grand journey through through your book, and um, I'm I'm just so thankful for your your generosity with your time to come and, and talk with us about it. I feel like we've just flown over um, the surface, and so I, I do hope that listeners um, go and, and get a copy of Calvin and Resignification of the World. Um, but Michelle, before you go, I wonder if you would be willing to share with us, what are you working on at the moment? Sure. Yeah. And thanks again for letting me talk about this book. It's a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, so I'm writing another book now, which when I finished this first book felt like an insurmountable task. I was like, so glad the first book was done. Now I've carried another one. Uh, but it's actually, it's, I've rounded the corner on it and it's become a lot of fun. Um, so I've written a few chapters so far, but it's looking at the neo-Calvinist adoption of worldview for theology. So uh, anyone who's sort of been in evangelical circles in the United States, especially will be familiar with the notion of a Christian worldview or a biblical worldview. Um, I certainly was raised to think of Christianity as a worldview, and I didn't think much of it for a long time. I was like, okay, it's a worldview, you know, but then as I got older, I was like, okay, this word worldview doesn't even exist until Kant coins it at the end of the 18th century. And like, it doesn't appear in all of this earlier theology. Like you read Augustine, you don't see anything about a worldview. You read Thomas Aquinas, there's nothing about a worldview. Calvin, nothing about a worldview. So, so what's going on here? How did Christianity become a worldview and not a religion, not a practice, not a community? You know, there's all these things that, that you're kind of saying no to when you say that Christianity is fundamentally a worldview. So what this book does is it looks at the initial three theologians who are James Orr, Abraham Cowper, and Herman Babink. Uh, who adopt this term and suggest that it's the best term for talking about Christianity. And I contextualize their writing in writing that came before. So Calvin, I go back to Calvin in one chapter and, and then I look at Hobbes and right now I'm working on a chapter on Kant and Hegel and Herder so that when worldview kind of emerges, but the way that I connect these is through the category of imagination, because for Kant, when he coins the term Weltanschauung, which is the German word that we use for worldview, sometimes world and life view. Um, there's other ways that people translate it, but it's basically Weltanschauung. Or, um, so when, when he does that, he's, he's trying to give an account of the use of the imagination, which is very important for Kant and very complicated. But if you take imagination as your category, before worldview exists, you can look at how Hobbes, in his theory of sovereignty, uh, used imagination. It was central for him. And for Calvin, imagination is central in ways that I only kind of touch on in the first book. Uh, so this gives me the opportunity to go back and really go deeper on what I think imagination is for Calvin in almost like a, a medical or psychological sense. Like how is the human being built, in, according to Calvin's understanding, what kind of physically is the imagination and therefore how do we understand how Christian teaching is designed to interface with the imagination. So I'm definitely doing that work in book one, but I'm really like deepening it um, in this book. And then I'm looking, like I said, at Hobbes, because that's where we get a theory of sovereignty and sovereignty turns out to be very important for the neo-Calvinists when they adopt worldview. It's, it's about 
the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of the Christian community deputized from the sovereignty of God, which is also a way Calvin doesn't really talk. He doesn't really use the word sovereignty. He talks about power. Um, so what does it mean for power to become sovereignty? And what does it mean for theology to become worldview? Like these are a way of reorganizing Christian teaching um, that I think has been hugely impactful in probably in some good ways, also in some negative ways, um, in the sense that it has kind of mobilized Christianity for a certain kind of culture war with opposing worldviews, such as secularism and humanism and Islam, you know, more recently has been characterized as a worldview. So I am interested in the history of how this happened and sort of what to make of it once we understand the deep connection between worldview and a kind of understanding of the human that is invested in uh, European anthropology coming out of Kant and Hegel. And lastly, I'll just say, I think this gives us a window into the complicated relationship between uh, certain kinds of Christian theology and uh, white supremacy, basically, because um, you can look at how this kind of anthropology of the human coming out of Europe came with kind of rankings for how human beings should be organized. And I think often quite unintentionally, those get sort of transferred into uh, Christian theology through this worldview term. Well, I absolutely can't wait for that book to come out and uh, maybe we can have you back on the show and talk about it when that happens. <laughs> I would love that because that will mean the book is done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, uh, this has been a conversation with Michelle Chaplin Sanchez, author of Calvin and the Resignification of the World, Creation, Incarnation, and the Problem of Political Theology in the 1559 Institutes. You can get your copy now from Cambridge University Press. Michelle, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Ryan. It was real. I, I really enjoyed it. And thanks to our listeners for tuning into this episode of New Books and Christian Studies. If you enjoyed this episode, I invite you to think of someone else you know that might enjoy the conversation that Michelle and I had here today and send them a link. It's the best way to support what we're trying to do here at the New Books Network. Visit our website at newbooksnetwork.com to find other interviews and whatever discipline you might be interested in. That's it for now, and I hope you have a great day. <laughs>